So welcome to your annual Trinity Sunday Sermon, where we get to dive into the mysteries of the Trinity. But before we do that, uh, let's just spend a moment or two thinking about the reading we've just heard from John's Gospel, the story of Nicodemus, a well-known story uh, with the figure of Nicodemus and all that stuff about being born again, and then probably the most famous uh, scripture passage in the world, John 3.16, which many of us probably even know off by heart, even if we don't know any of the other bits. But despite it all being quite well known, the reality is this is not an easy passage. I think each of the commentators I read, and I read six or seven, uh, gave me a different interpretation of what this whole story was about. So we might think it's easy, but actually, I mean, what is that born-again stuff all about? The reality is that you and I are probably with Nicodemus on this one, trying to struggle with it all. And one of the problems with it, with the story, is that we read it as a standalone story. And part of that is that when the New Testament was written, when John's Gospel was written and all the rest of it, there were no verses, there were no chapters. Uh, so it was just one long thing. In fact, in the Hebrew, they didn't have any punctuation. There aren't even full stops. I'm not entirely sure about the Greek on that. So you have to work, in fact, it's true of the Greek, because you, you have to work out, the translators have put the full stops in for us, which means they've had to work out where the sentences end, which mostly is okay, but there are a couple of times in John's Gospel where there are people who go, actually, we think the translators have got this wrong. There shouldn't be a full stop there. What comes next is part of the, the, what came first. Uh, and so that's one of the problems. And, and the other problem is we have this, uh, we put little chat, um, headings on all the stories. So if you read the Gospels, it has a little story there about this is the story of Nicodemus. So all of that encourages us to think that this is a standalone story. So we read it as a standalone story. But it's not a standalone story. It just goes with the flow of what John is doing. And in fact, we read just before this, we would have read that John said about Jesus that Jesus did not trust him to anyone who believed because of the signs he was doing. And then we have an example of someone who comes who trusts because of the signs he was doing and we get an example of how Jesus treats him. Now at this point in John's Gospel we might think we know what all those signs are but in fact there's only been one thing that's been called a sign and that was the wedding at Cana and then Jesus goes to Jerusalem and cleans the temple. Like, we're only in chapter 3 here. So there's been no healings, there's been no casting out demons. Those are the two signs. And because of that, Nicodemus comes and talks to Jesus. So, what might be going on here? Well, Jesus, Nicodemus, is wanting to figure it out. So here he is, this leader of the Judeans, another kind of tricky part of the way that the New Testament is translated is the word for Judeans can also be translated as Jews, and so it's often translated as Jews, but actually, if we treat it as Judeans, it makes a lot more sense. So he's not a leader of all the Jews, he's a leader of the Judeans, he is part of the temple of the, of the Jerusalem elite and there's this kind of ongoing thing going on between the Jerusalem elite and this hillbilly from Galilee. So that's what all that's about, kind of contrasting these two 
people. And he wants, maybe, there's a lot of discussion about how genuine his question is, but even if we take it genuinely, he wants to understand what Jesus is on about. He wants to figure him out. Like, what is this all about? He wants to know what the rules are so that he can then understand it and then make some decisions about it. And to that question, Jesus says, well, you have to be born again. And that's where each of the commentators offered a number of different understandings of what that might mean. One of the ones I found most helpful said, to be born again is to start again. It's kind of like last night I went to Bonnie's concert. Well, it was more than Bonnie. There was quite a whole lot of people singing. Um, But uh, at the end of it, uh, a guy was trying to bring a taxi and his phone wasn't working. So he borrowed my phone. In the end, he said, you know, what can I do about this? And I said, often when this happens, all you have to do is restart your phone. And it'll clear all the problems. And it'll work properly after that. To be born again is to be like that, is to push the reset button. It is to push the restart button and to start again. So what does it mean to start again as a leader of the Judeans? Well, it means letting go of everything that defined him and made sense of the world. So letting go of his family and the position that family gave him within Judean society, letting go of the fact that he was a Pharisee, Letting go of how he understood the law. Letting go of the fact that he understood himself to be a Jew and a chosen person of God and therefore superior to everyone else in the world. Letting go of everything by which he made sense of the world. And to start again. To start again. But this time, not in a way that you can understand. Jesus isn't offering us a list of doctrines by which we, if we understand these, we've got it nailed. He was offering a way of life. If you wanted to follow Jesus, you had to follow him. And you had to learn what it meant to live that way. I think that's what was going on at Pentecost. The disciples were trying to work it out. They were just like Nicodemus. They were trying to work it out. They were trying to understand. They were trying to work out what the rules were. And if they could just get that, they would be fine And in Luke's gospel, the very last question they ask Jesus is, now the time the kingdom of Israel will be restored. Like they still don't get it. After everything, they still don't get it. And then something happens at Pentecost and a switch is flipped and they go, oh actually, it's not about getting it. It's about living it. It's about actually going out the locked door and living it. And the first Christians were called followers of the way. The way of Jesus. They weren't the people that had all the right doctrine. They weren't the people that had the best theology. They were the people that lived what Jesus had been on about. And they went out across the world living it. That's what Jesus was offering. It wasn't offering a way of understanding the world. It was offering a way of life. So... Today is Trinity Sunday. For most of our history, Christians have tried to understand the Trinity. And I have preached amazing sermons here about the Trinity. And I'm sure that you remember them all. They were awesome. Even used this icon up here to explain all the 
theological intricacies about it all. So I'm sure that every time you look at it, guys, we remember John telling us all about this. And you've got it nailed. If we look at church history, nearly every, maybe every single major schism within the church has been about the Trinity, the nature of God. Because people disagreed with each other about what they were saying and the language they were using. We couldn't get it. We still can't get it. Of course we can't get it. It's God. Like we're trying to describe something. We're trying to understand something that in the end is not knowable and indescribable. But there is an old tradition within the Eastern Orthodox Church out of which this icon comes, which says actually the important thing about the Trinity isn't understanding it. The important thing about the Trinity is the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. If we can understand that relationship, then maybe we have a way of understanding God. So how might we understand the relationship within the Trinity? Well, we understand it as being uh, equal. This is a relationship between equals. It's a self-giving relationship. Each person of the Trinity is totally giving towards the other person. It is loving. St. Augustine of Hippo described, uh, named the three persons of the Trinity as the lover, the beloved, and the love. It's a quality of relationship. If you think of the best that you would ever want in a relationship, then you can understand get a glimpse of what the relationship at the heart of the Trinity is all about. And when we start with the Trinity, then we can start putting all those big theological things within that to help us understand that relationship. So they are co-eternal. The Father wasn't first and the others came later. They were always and will always be. They are equal. And together in the circle of love, they love and offer that love for all creation. And out of that love, John says, well, out of that love comes the Son for all creation and all humanity. And if we meet one person of the Trinity, then we meet all three, although all three are different. The relationship, then, is what is important. Now, if we look at this icon, you'll see... I wish my little thing, the lasers don't work on TV screens. It's very disappointing. But you can see a little square here, or a rectangle. I was a math teacher, I know the difference. Come over here and show you your rectangle here. There's a rectangle right here. Now, it is said that that used to be a mirror, and the mirror has gone. Why would there be a mirror in an icon about the Trinity? Well, it was so that when the person looking at the icon look, could see themselves. We are invited to dwell, to live in the heart of the Trinity. Now, one of the metaphors of describing this relationship is a dance, a dance of love. And when we look at ourselves in the Trinity, we are invited to join in that dance of love, to live in that dance of love. What does that look like? 
What does it look like when we start with joining a dance of love? Well, I think Bishop Michael Curry described that quite well last week, didn't he? When he said, love God, love your neighbour, and while you're at it, love yourself, love. Love is the best thing, it's the biggest thing, it's the thing we celebrate. That is what the Trinity is about, love. The dance of love and the invitation for each of us to join the dance. So on Trinity Sunday, while all the doctrines about Trinity are important, they're important only so that we can understand the dance and so that we can hear the invitation to join that dance. So I invite you to think about where are the relationships where you encounter God? And what kind of relationships with people might you be invited to develop that others might meet the same God of love, the dance of love? What does it mean for you to join the dance of the Trinity? Let's just spend a moment reflecting on that. And then we're not going to use, I think it's the Nicene Creed that we're supposed to use today, or the Apostles' Creed, because that just gets into how we're going to understand God. We're going to kind of use the one from 476 instead. But for now, just reflect on the dance of the Trinity.